If you have a Bible, if you would open it with me to the book of Acts, chapter 15, and we'll get rolling. A little bit of background here, just to recap, for those of you who may not have been with us, uh, Luke, Dr. Luke, the guy that wrote Acts, because the, the gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts are actually one literary unit that was split uh, one is goes all the way up to the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and Acts begins with the ascension and goes on out. Talks about the Acts of the Apostles, the founding and the operation of the early church. The church had run into some problems. They were told in verse 1, certain men of, of chapter 15 in, in Acts, certain men had come down uh, uh, from, from Jerusalem. They went to Antioch in Syria. Uh, they came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And I, I picture these guys saying that and saying, so there, <laughs> deal with it. I mean, they were strict legalists and they, they, were, they were serious, they believed it, and they were peddling it. Second Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, we are not like the many who peddle the word of God. And there were guys that were peddling the word of God back in that day. So it causes a big ruckus. I mean, it says that there was a sharp dispute among them. And Paul and Barnabas, the, the, the two guys there that had just come in from, well, not just, but had in recent months come in from their first evangelistic missionary outreach where they had gone all over Asia Minor and been winning souls to Christ on the grace based on the grace of God, that, that the grace of God was being poured out to these Gentiles. These, and a Gentile is anybody that's not a Jew. And, and now these guys are coming and saying, no, 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 you've got to live like a Jew or you're not going to be saved. And, and I mean, <laughs> Paul was not having it. And he stood against them and they decided, you know what? We need to go talk to the guys in Jerusalem. We need to go and seek the counsel of the apostles, the very men that had actually walked with Jesus. And that's what they do. So in, in verse 4, we see that when they come to Jerusalem, the, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all the things that God had done with them. Exciting times. I mean, the Gentiles were coming in droves and giving their lives to Christ. They, for the first time, were being, uh, they were being delivered from the whole pantheon of Greek and Roman gods that they had worshipped for centuries. And, and now they were finding, you mean, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to, I don't have to jump through a bunch of hoops. I don't have to become a Jew in order to relate to this God that you're talking? No, you don't. You simply have to trust that he sent his son to die for you, and that's it. Salvation's free. And the Jews wrestled with that. They did not like it. I've mentioned it before. They, what do you mean? I've lived by the law of Moses my entire life from the time I was a kid. And I have observed Shabbat, and I have done this, and I have done that, and I have you know, done all of the, you know, I wash ceremonially and the whole thing. And now you're saying that salvation's free to these scummy Gentiles? <laughs> it's just like they're going, please. And, and, but, and yet Paul and Barnabas are saying, essentially, yeah, it's free. No charge. <laughs> 
Price has been paid. Come as you are. Come as you are. So from there, uh, we read in the, the epistle, the, the letter to the church the churches in Galatia. It's the book of Galatians in the New Testament, which was the, it was written, that letter was written to a group of churches, which were the churches that Paul and Barnabas had gone and planted. And we'll get to that uh, a little bit today, but starting next week, because they go back uh, in their second journey, they, Paul and Silas will go back and revisit those churches to check up on them and see how they're doing. Well, Paul says that in that book, he gives a little bit more uh, of an illustration. He says that they had met with the leaders there in Jerusalem, Peter, uh, the apostle Peter. I mean, they met with him. They met with James, who had become, he had emerged. James is Jesus' brother, half-brother. Same mom, <laughs> different father. But they met with Peter and James and they met with the elders and the leaders in Jerusalem. And they met privately at first. And then they went with the, they took, then after that, they took the meeting to, we're told, to the multitude, which means a larger group of people. It doesn't mean a football stadium full necessarily. It could. <laughs> I love words, you know. I was thinking about the word multitude. So it's like, is one person or a couple of people, is that a tude? <laughs> and, then, and then more than that's a multitude? I don't know. I don't think so. But it, it, the word just struck me funny. That was just this morning. I was sitting over across the way. I was looking, got all tripped out on the word multitude. Anyway, they took it to the, a larger group. And so Peter gets up at first. He says, look, let me remind you about what happened with me and Cornelius when, you know, I went from Joppa up to Caesarea and, you know, God gave me this vision and he gave Cornelius a vision and look, the gospel's going to the Gentiles. So Peter reminds him of all that. And then James gets up and he says, all right, we're going to make some decisions. And I'm paraphrasing here because we don't, we've already covered this, but I want to bring you back up to speed. James gets up. And he says, look, we need, to, we need to, to make some decisions here. We've got to realize there's more than one issue at stake. The first one primarily is salvation. How is a person saved? Are they, because the Jews had, that had gone up uh, to Antioch from Jerusalem had said, you, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised, you follow the law of Moses and all that. And yet they also knew that there were two cultures that were in potential conflict here because the Jewish Christians had grown up with a certain set of customs and a certain moral code. And the Gentile Christians had grown up without any of that and, and literally had come in from a completely godless and immoral life. And so how do we get these two groups to get along? was essentially what they're doing here. Uh, and so in verse 19, James says, therefore I judge that we shouldn't trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them. And I just think the divine wisdom in this is so beautiful. What they write in this letter, so, and I'll, the, the, the letter that they wrote starts in verse 23. It says, they wrote this letter by them the apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, which is the adjoining province in the Roman Empire. Greetings. 
Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, they distanced themselves. They, 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 they might have come from Jerusalem, but they didn't come from us. That's what they're saying. It seems good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. This is, again, divine wisdom. They're not going to send this letter just with Barnabas and Paul so Barnabas and Paul can go back and argue some more with the guys that were bringing in the false doctrine. (laughs) They said, we're going to send some of our own leaders and they will be the ones who carry this letter. (laughs) And uh, so that's what they do. This is men who have risked their lives. Barnabas and Paul risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas. Now, that's not the same Judas as we see, you know, that betrayed Jesus. Judas was a popular name in the first century. And so this is, this is like good Judas. <laughs> and, and Silas, another guy, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. They're going to testify to the accurateness, the truthfulness of this letter. Don't just take Paul and Barnabas' word for it. They are the ones that came back to us with the complaint that y'all have. So we're sending some other guys with them. He says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. I like that. Not seemed good to us. Seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. We're not here to weight you down with rules and regulations. He says, that you abstain from things offered to idols. Again, pagan, Gentile worship very often was centered around idols. Uh, you look in, and we'll get into the, the church at Ephesus here uh, when we get a little further down the road. And, and there, the, the great temple of Diana that was there, we saw that when Paul and Barnabas went to Lystra, that or uh, was it, it was one of the Galatian churches that they, they thought that they were gods and tried to sacrifice animals to them. So it's saying, okay, don't eat uh, the meat, the sacrifice to idols. Uh, stay away from blood, from things strangled. Now those are things that are kosher. That would, that would appease a Jewish mindset. And from sexual immorality, because again, pagan worship revolved around sex and around aberrant, perverse sexual activity. And so they're saying, look, we, what their, their goal in this is not, yes, of course, both Jew and Gentile want to live sexually pure and moral lives, obviously. The rest of it, though, was these are some guidelines because we want you to get along with each other because we want you to be able to occupy the same building together and not be at each other's throat. Well, you got to be circumcised. Well, that's fine. I saw you, you know, you're eating that stuff down at the pagan meat market. And well, I saw, you know, and they're trying to deliver them from all of this nonsense. Again, godly wisdom says, if you keep yourself from these, you'll do well. Farewell. That's the end of the letter. So, 
as we wrapped up last time, we saw that this letter had been carried to the Antioch church. They took this from Jerusalem, carried it all the way up to Antioch, which is due north of Jerusalem. Uh, Antioch was uh, near the, the coastal, uh, the east coast of the Mediterranean there, uh, north of Jerusalem in what would be now called Syria or Lebanon. So they take this thing, this letter back and but they don't take it by Paul or Barnabas, lest they be accused of making it up by their detractors. Uh, again, they wanted to be real careful with this. But they took it by Judas and Silas. Leaders, of, uh, These guys were leaders in the Jerusalem church, and they actually were named within the letter. That takes us to where we're going to start today. <laughs> so, verse 30. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. And I just think that that is so awesome. Uh, The congregation at Antioch, they didn't see these essentials as negative or restrictive. They were encouraged because it was an exhortation to obedience, to simply toe the line, do what's right. Folks, One of the things that's true is we are absolutely, we are saved by the grace of God. God's unmerited favor. We'll talk about that towards the end of the message today. But what's also true is obedience is important to living a life that's obedient to the Lord. And there are times where God, I I like the saying that he will shout as loudly into your life as he needs to, to get your attention. And there have been times where he has shouted very loudly into my life. And I praise God that he's gotten my attention. Folks, that's the, that's the case. And there are times where he doesn't have to speak very loudly. He'll just give some mild correction. And that's good too. But he does want to guide the course of our lives. And that's what these guys are doing with this letter. They're saying, look, allow God to guide the course of your life. Obedience is important. Now, a lot of times as a younger Christian, when I would think about the word obedience... My mind, my goofy mind, would go to, you know, watching back in the you know, variety show days, you know, Ed Sullivan or whatever it was, it, where they'd have a guy up there and he'd have an animal and the animal's doing tricks. And when the animal is obedient, he pops a treat in its mouth. <laughs> Guess remember that? It's not what he's talking about. And so I had this really kind of this warped idea of being obedient to the Lord as though I was some animal on a leash that, you know, I would get a reward if I was. No, you got to realize the reward has already taken place and obedience is a response. The reward is salvation. The reward is a relationship with him. The reward is a free gift of life. And my response is I want to obey. I want to live in the light. I want to love him and demonstrate my love for him. So this exhortation was an exhortation to obedience. Having been set apart, it's a good thing to live set apart. Plus, the disciples now knew that they didn't have to live like Jews in order to be saved. They didn't have to become a Jew in order to enjoy the benefits of knowing Christ. I'm going to read a quote that I came. This is uh, by one of the commentaries I read a lot. This is a guy named Albert Barnes. Uh, And I love Barnes's work. 
He says, this closes the account of the first Christian council. And we've talked about that the last couple of studies where the Council of Jerusalem, or the Jerusalem Council, take your pick, whichever title. Uh, It was conducted throughout on Christian principles in a mild, kind, conciliatory spirit and is a model for all similar assemblages. It came together not to promote, but to silence disputation. Not to persecute the people of God, but to promote their peace. Not to be a scene of harsh and angry recrimination, but to be an example of all that was mild and tender and kind. Those who composed it came together not to carry on a point, not to overreach their adversaries, not to be party men, but to mingle their sober counsels, to inquire what was right and to express in a Christian manner that which was proper to be done. In other words, they didn't go in there shaking their fists and saying, listen, you guys, you bozos, you better get your act together or else. That's how the world handles conflict. And you know, there are certain ministries out there, uh, and I call them discernment ministries, and discernment's good, but there are certain ministries out there that started out well by finding error with other ministries, and believe me, if you look, you're going to find it. But as their, as, their, as their crowds grew, as they gained traction and gained momentum, the way that those organizations are funded is through clicks. <laughs> and if you understand how the whole internet economy works, the more clicks you get, the more money you earn. And the more money you earn, the more that you are prone to want to get fresh content out there. I mean, and that's the machine. That's the internet machine. That's how all the internet works. And my son is fond of saying, Dad, you are not the consumer. You are the product. <laughs> and, and that's true. My point is, is that a lot of the discernment ministries have gotten to the point where I start calling it heretic of the week. It's like they're out there, they're digging so hard to try to find new content that they're actually, they're indicting good people. And, they're, and anybody that differs with them stylistically. Now, I'm not talking about major doctrines. I'm not talking about the cardinal doctrines of the faith. Because the faith, because that, like here with Paul, that's worth arguing over. That's worth having the discussion about. Minor stuff? Pooey. I just don't have time. I would rather sit and read my Bible and, and be edified, be built up, than to sit there and surf websites that have just nothing but negative garbage things to say. That's healthy. Enough said. Verse 32. Now, and that's free, by the way. (laughs) That's just uh, something that it's on my heart these days because discernment ministries, when they began to be monetized, I guess I wasn't done. When they began to be monetized, it really created a machine that And I mean, uh, my pastor, Chuck Smith, who was just a guy, he was just a man. He was a greatly used man. And I remember when they went after him and it was like, man, oh man, you guys are just ruthless trying to find and nitpick every little thing. And, so if, you, and if you want to go back, uh, somebody was telling me before service, they went back to some of my studies that I was teaching in 2017. <laughs> and... 
And, and I'm thinking, okay, uh, that's great. But if you, wanted, if you wanted to go through every one of my studies, every one of my teachings, you're going to find things that I've said that are wrong. <laughs> you're going to find things that are goofy. You're going to find things where I misspoke. We'll get to that when we talk about the Bereans in a couple of weeks, because when Paul and Barnabas are on their sec- or Paul and Silas are on his second missionary journey, they go to a place called Berea, and the Bereans, they've got it figured out because they're searching the scriptures to see what is so. That's our standard, not what some guy says. So the other thing that's interesting here, it talks about Judas and Silas, and there's nothing known. This is the only time that we see Judas, this Judas, in all of the Bible. There's nothing known of him except uh, that he was a faithful, gifted follower of Jesus. He had risen up as a leader in the Jerusalem church and was trusted, evidently trusted, because he and Silas were the ones that were sent out with Paul and Barnabas to go back to Antioch and testify to this letter. And so it's interesting to me, uh, again, seeking a reputation. These guys weren't seeking a reputation. They got one. Judas is in the Bible. But they were just seeking to serve the Lord. I, there are people I, I know, not not here, some people in my family that are trying to become famous. And, and it breaks my heart because I think, man, you're just barking down the wrong, you're just, it's just not right. Jesus, if you, have you ever noticed how many times Jesus said, now don't go tell, don't tell anybody about this. Why did he do that? Because he made himself of no reputation. The only reputation that Judas has here is he shows up here in Acts 15 as a man that was faithfully doing what God had called him to do. I love that. Yeah, the, the, the media, so often they'll find some clown that's you know wearing a sandwich board and marching up and down the street or whatever. And, and yet they don't go to the little church out in the country somewhere where the guy has faithfully served for 35 years and given up much. It's not about a reputation. and you know, I just tell my kids when they're growing up, and one thing you don't want more than anything else, you don't want a reputation. But let me tell you something. Something that you want more than anything else is you want a reputation. <laughs> it all goes to what is that reputation saying? My point in that is that you know, our culture, it celebrates fame. We, we, we give great place to famous people. Uh, but folks, you've got to understand the world's measure is so different from divine measure, from the kingdom's measure. Uh, the way that the kingdom measures is not on notoriety, but on faithfulness. And I see here with this guy, with both of these guys, faithful servants, faithful men. It says also that Judas and Silas are prophets. Now I want to stop there and I want to talk about prophets for a minute. Um, they're not prophets in the Old Testament sense of the word. You've got to understand, John the Baptist was like the last of the Old Testament styled prophets. Even though he's in the New Testament, he's referred to often uh, by scholars and, and by many as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets because he was the one that came to announce Messiah. And I get that. I mean, and these guys, they were told in Hebrews chapter 1 that they, they had each 
of the prophets, they had the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the fullness of the Spirit that you and I can have because our sins have been cleansed. They've been removed. All that they could do in the old covenant, the old contract, the old testament, was have their sins covered. God rose up certain men that he wanted to communicate through to his people, and those were the prophets. They were his mouthpieces. So from that standpoint, a New Testament prophet is similar, but not the same. I want to explain that a little bit. Uh, So a New Testament prophet simply would represent or represent Jesus through the power of his spirit. That's what, I mean, the focal point would always come back to Christ. So what's the purpose of a New Testament prophet, you might ask? And the answer, I think, there are three sides. There's a practical aspect, a revelatory aspect, and a predictive aspect. And I know we're getting kind of classroom-ish here, but hopefully you'll understand as we go through here. Now, the office of a prophet is seen in in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. talks about apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. Those are offices in the church. Now, I personally believe, and again, in the interpretation, you're not going to lose your salvation one way or the other on this, but I personally personally believe that those offices are distinct from the lists of spiritual gifts that you see in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. Now, you do have to have gifts to carry out whatever office God has called you to, but they're distinct. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, speaks of the church being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So a prophet proclaimed a message from the Lord to the early followers of Jesus. That was their primary calling. Remember, the early Christians, they didn't have a complete Bible. They had the Old Testament. They were, But these guys, I mean, they're part of the New Testament coming into being. So what did God do in the interim? So, well, and that's sometimes a prophet's message was revelatory. In other words, he revealed something about God, a new revelation or a new truth from God. Sometimes the prophet's message was predictive. In other words, God would use prophets to tell what was going to happen ahead of time so that when it did, he would get the glory, that he would be credited with that. We saw in Acts eleven twenty eight that there was a guy by the name of Agabus, and he stood up. He was from the, uh, the Antioch church, and he showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world. And then there was. While there is a practical aspect of prophecy, if you want to look at the gift of prophecy that we see, uh, it simply means to speak forth. I'm prophesying now in that sense. Now, that doesn't mean I'm a prophet. That means that I am prophesying. I'm employing the, the gift of teaching and the gift of prophecy to speak forth. They kind of go hand in hand. And again, there's some some dispute, debate about these things. I'm giving you the best shot that I see from God's word. Study it out yourself. If you have different ideas, that's great. We can agree to disagree. But my point is, is that the office of prophet, the revelatory and the predictive aspects of that are no longer needed. Think about it. If the purpose of a prophet was to reveal truth from God, 
Why would we need prophets if we have the completed revelation from God in the Bible? We don't. If prophets were charged with laying the foundation of the church, are we still building that foundation? No, we're not. There are people out there today that will call themselves prophets. Dangerous. So on the other side of that, do people still receive messages from God? Yes. Again, looking at spiritual giftedness, uh, very often I will receive what the Bible refers to as a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. And that's a supernatural gift that the Holy Spirit, he will just, it's like he will just give me uh, an understanding of a situation or uh, of something that's going on. And God does communicate with his people. I'm not saying that, they, that he doesn't. But you've got to be really careful what you ascribe to as being the work of a prophet. The office of prophet, uh, from an Old Testament sense, is not the same as a New Testament prophet. And the office of prophet, I believe, was a temporary office when God was founding the church. When he was using, by his spirit using men to speak new revelation into existence to build that foundation that we rest our faith on today. That foundation is built. We don't have to rebuild it. And when people come up with alleged new revelations from God, I, I'm telling you, that, that'll get my skin to crawl and that'll, that'll get me a little amped up because I've seen it before and... It's dangerous. False prophets abounded in the first century, and they abound today. First John chapter 4, verse 1, the apostle John here, he writes, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they're of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The guys that came from Jerusalem and started disturbing the people, the church at Antioch, in the sense of prophesying or saying this is what God says, we're false prophets. And there's a test. Deuteronomy 18, I'm not going to go, we don't have time. But the test for a prophet is really important. And it's that if, and, but I do want you to understand the parameters of it. And that's that if, if 100%, I'm not talking about 99.9, but if 100% of what that person says is, if it's not 100%, you have the ability to just dismiss it. Let it go. Throw it out. Because if somebody's truly a prophet of God, everything that they say will be from God. If they're not, then that'll show up. And I've said. So verse 33, after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings uh, from the brethren to the apostles. So we're talking about, again, Judas and Silas here. They stuck around Antioch for a period of time, uh, and they were sent back. Uh, verse 34, however, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. So <laughs> I like that. That is just this like passing thing in a sentence is like, Silas, you know, he's, he's kind of sitting there. He's like, I have an idea. I think I'll stick around for a while. No big deal. It is a big deal. God reshapes the church through this guy traveling. He's going to go off with the Apostle Paul. He'll be the one that goes on the second missionary journey and not Barnabas. We'll see that in a minute. 
But I, I love that it gets introduced here as like, you know, I think I'll just stick around. So the Jerusalem delegation eventually headed home, but it seemed good to Silas to stick around to stay in Antioch. Uh, so we see that Silas and Judas, they're introduced in verse 22 as leaders in the Jerusalem church. Going on in verse 27, they traveled to Antioch as witnesses to validate the conclusions drawn at the Council of Jerusalem. In verse 32, we see that he and Judas are exhorting and strengthening the brethren with many words. They had a lot to say. God was using them where they were at. I love the saying, bloom where you are planted. By the way, we need help with some ministries around here. It's a great time to say that, huh? Uh, love to see people step up more. We need some workers for children's ministry. Uh, we could use more help in our media ministry. And um, yeah, come and see me. Come and see Stacy afterwards. We'd love to uh, talk with you about that. Should the Lord put that on your heart? Uh, anyway, the point is in this, a huge part of walking by faith is in not knowing what's around the next bend. These guys had no idea. When Silas decided, I'm going to stick around, I'm going to stay in Antioch, he couldn't have known that God would use him in a mighty, powerful, enduring ministry that would carry him across the empire. He's just thinking, well, you know, God's using me here, so I think I'll just stick around and see what happens. You guys remember in October, my first, uh, the first study that I did when I came back uh, after having had this heart attack and dropping dead out at the beach and all of that, uh, I shared with you that for me, it was just another day. Just another day. Yeah, I got up that morning and was just going about my business. I had things that I wanted to get done and it was just another day. Well, for Silas here, it's just another day. We just don't know what God's going to do with it. And that's my point. Verse 35, Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So why would it say teaching and preaching? Aren't those the same? No, they're really not. It has to do do with, there is a difference in the way that you deal with people who have already come to know the Lord and people who have not come to know the Lord yet. You teach those who are redeemed, those who know the Lord. And so these people were coming, they're giving their lives to Christ, they're asking him to forgive them for their sins and, and stepping into his kingdom and all that. And now they begin, they need to be discipled. They need to be taught. And that's the same thing today, by the way. On the other hand, people that didn't know the Lord or were not walking with the Lord or had walked away from the Lord or whatever it is, that's where preaching comes in. Preaching the gospel, which means to simply to disseminate the word uh, that, that, look, Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. He, he offers you new life. You don't have to take it, but you know the options are pretty limited if you don't. Judgment separation from God for eternity. All of those things, the components of preaching. Now, if I, if there were a, a, a lot of you folks here, and a lot of you have been here for some time, some not as long, but if I just preached a salvation message every time we gathered, 
Number one, how boring would that be? Not because the, the gospel is boring, but because you've already heard it. And, and you want to be taught. You, you want meat. Now, there's, not, there's a difference between milk and meat. The, the book of Hebrews goes into great detail on, he says, look, you should be teaching other people by now. But you have need of milk. You need the elementary principles of the gospel. You need preaching again, and you should have moved on from needing preaching to needing to be taught. As a matter of fact, you should have been taught to the point where now you can teach other people. All right? So that's the progression here. There's preaching and teaching, and they're doing both. The point is Paul and Barnabas stick around. They hang out at Antioch there in Syria themselves, and begin now to preach to the lost and to teach those who had come to know the Lord. Verse 36, and after some days, Paul uh, said to Barnabas, let's now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So um, Paul, again, this just starts with an idea. In the same way that, that with Silas, it started with an idea. I think I'll, I'm not going to go back to Jerusalem with uh, the other guys. I'm going to stay here for a while. Well, now Paul, he's ever the restless one. If you don't know anything about Paul, he is, the guy had wanderlust. He, I'll tell you, he loved to travel. He loved, and God created him that way. I know that there was, after I got saved, there was a couple kind of, kind of put a head trip on me. So we know that you're called to the mission field. (laughs) And I wasn't. And I'm glad that I didn't just go out there and flounder on the mission field because I took their word for it. God calls some people, and I'll tell you what, if you don't like bugs, he's not going to call you to the tropics. You know, I, I I don't believe that God does that yet. Or is there discomfort? Is there, does he challenge us with what he calls us to do? Absolutely. But my point is, is that he will uniquely gift and equip you to that which he has called you to do. Hebrews chapter 13 is very clear. He does not, he does not call the equipped. He equips the called. So the call on Paul's life, and God knew it before Paul did, was that he was going to be going all over the empire, thousands of miles. And in those days, that was an investment. And so Paul here, he says, you know, feeling kind of restless, Barnabas. How about we go back and we visit those churches that we planted before? There's, there's an idea for you. Interesting. This would be the genesis. This would be the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. This statement right here is the very front end of his second journey. And the narrative of Paul's second missionary journey, would that lasts about three years, and that's what we're going to get into next. The next three years, it begins here in Acts 15.36, and it continues all the way through chapter 18, verse 23. And there's a lot of miles that they're going to lay down between here and there. There's a lot of work that they're going to do. They're going to endure a lot of hostility. They're going to have a lot of hardships. <laughs> Paul's going to get run out of more towns than he did on his first journey. And he got run out of a lot of towns then. And, and it's going to be just a, this is a tremendous part of the book of Acts. I've been really looking forward to this section because 
I particularly enjoy his second missionary journey more than the others. And it's just a personal preference, but it starts here. Great stuff. Verse 37, now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. Now, remember when these guys left the island of um, Cyprus and they sailed over to the mainland that Mark bailed out on them. Uh, it says in verse 38, um, Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Remember, Mark was described when he, when he went across the island of Cyprus and then he went up to Pamphylia, which was on the mainland uh, north of Cy- Cyprus on the coast. Mark was described as an under rower. He was the guy that was carrying out the work. He was doing the heavy lifting for the ministry. And and Paul suddenly realized when Mark left, wow, we've got a hole here to fill and I don't know how to fill it. And he was not happy that Mark had taken on the work and had bailed out. And we don't know what the details are. Mark might have had, John Mark might have had a good reason. It could have been that he was just Homesick? We don't know how old he was. We know he went back to Jerusalem. He didn't go back to Antioch. He went back to Jerusalem. That's where he lived. That's where his mother lived. We also know that John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. So Barnabas was partial to him. He was family. So uh, when it says in verse 38 that Paul insisted, it's interesting. The tense there is that he kept on insisting. (laughs) That He's, he's saying, uh, uh, no, no, Barnabas, no, no. What part of no don't you understand, Barnabas? He's not going to go with us. No. <laughs> That's sort of what the, the feel is here. That's the sense that you get. So pretty clear that Paul had become angry with him when he walked away from the ministry. But also remember that God is a redemptive God. God is a forgiving God, that God restores it's always God's will to restore. He doesn't just put us out the pasture when we screw things up, when we get things wrong. I love that about the Lord. Uh, in Second Timothy, when Paul is writing back uh, to Timothy, he knows that Timothy and Mark are together. And uh, he calls for Mark from Rome, from the Mamertine prison where he was at, shortly before he was executed. So evidently they'd patch things up. The other thing about John Mark is he would go on to write the gospel according to Mark. Same guy. So he would be greatly used of God, just not right now. (laughs) He couldn't put himself on the shelf. And Paul was saying, I'm not having it. So he and Barnabas had no small dispute about it. Um, But Barnabas, again, partial to him. I also remember Barnabas's name translates son of encouragement. So there's a good possibility that Barnabas was just, his character was that he was just more gracious, more generous. Verse 39, the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Now remember, Barnabas is from Cyprus. We saw that early on in the book. So Barnabas says, come on, Mark, I'm going home. 
But they had also done a lot of work there. They had planted churches there. He and Paul had. And so they, Barnabas says, we're going to head back to Cyprus. It says, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. Now, I've got a map here that shows that Barnabas and Mark, they head to the island there off the coast, Cyprus. Paul and Silas, remember they had gone to Galatia, Paul and Barnabas had gone to Galatia on his first journey. That's the purple area. Now, rather than have to go the long way around, Paul can take the overland route and go straight through Cilicia and go up into the region of Galatia to revisit the churches that he and Barnabas had planted there. That's how he starts his second missionary journey. He goes back to visit these churches. Now, by the way, Paul was from Cilicia. That's the province. It'd be like saying, I'm from Oregon. I'm from Newburgh. Well, Paul was from Cilicia. The city was Tarsus in Cilicia. All right. So Paul, he had to pass through his home territory. There's nothing written that he stopped But I always look at this and I think, wink, wink, I bet he did. I would, just if not anything else but to say hello to family, friends, whatever. We know that Paul spent some time there. But we're also told that in verse 41 that he went through Syria and Cilicia and strengthened the churches. Now, we don't know how the churches in Syria and Cilicia were started. There's nothing written about that. We know that there were churches that existed. Maybe they were churches that Paul had planted during, I call it his silent years. Remember, he spent a number of years in Tarsus after his Damascus Road experience and all of that before Barnabas went from Antioch and picked him up and took him back to Antioch earlier in the book. We don't know. We do know that that's his home province and and, uh, that he's going to travel through that with Silas on this next journey. The other thing I think is interesting about that is is that the ministry did not split at that point. It doubled. All right? You got Barnabas and Mark heading to Cyprus and doing the work there. And you know that because Barnabas had been a leader. He had been the leader with Paul when Paul was coming, kind of coming into his own, into his own ministry. And remember, it was Barnabas and Paul, or Barnabas and Saul for a long time, and then it flipped and it became Paul and Barnabas, if you look at that in the narratives here. Well, the same thing. Uh, So Barnabas now, he takes off with his cousin Mark. They take off, they go to Cyprus. Paul and Silas go across through Syria and Cilicia into Galatia. And they and between the two of them, because the ministry is now doubled, they save a whole lot of time going back to the churches that they'd already been to. Like I mentioned, I look at this as the ministry didn't split, but through divine providence, because God knew what he was doing, the ministry doubled. They would have the opportunity to strengthen all the churches they'd planted. So as we wrap up, I want to ponder a couple of things. Actually, I've got three things here. And the first goes from, it credits back to early in Acts 15 and on through with the need for this letter and the council at Jerusalem and all of that. 
Because what the legalists were doing, they were coming in and saying, you've got to live by the law of Moses, you've got to do this, you've got to, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to live like a Jew, or you can't be a Christian. And essentially, the, Paul and Barnabas said hogwash, the guys in Jerusalem said hogwash. No, you don't. But you do have responsibility. And that was the point that with this letter that they sent back. And that's that obedience is very different than legalism. Very different. It can look the same on the surface, but it's very different. It goes to legalism, legalism says obedience is how I merit God's favor. In other words, if I toe the line, then God's going to be happy with me. And if I don't, then he's not happy. No, if you have given your life to Christ, he is happy with you eternally. Period. End of story. You don't have to do stuff to earn God's favor that's free. So legalism says obedience is how I merit God's favor. Obedience, on the other hand, is the joyful outworking of walking in God's unmerited favor. Another word for unmerited favor is what? Grace. It's a response to his grace. These guys sent the letter back from Jerusalem to the church at Antioch, and they said, look, there are some things you can do, but let that be a response to the grace that God has already poured out on your life. You don't have to do that to be saved. No, there's nothing that has to be done for you to be saved. That work is already done. So folks, obedience is important, and it's not earning a treat to get popped into your mouth. (laughs) Like I said, that's my own warped thing. You know, it's like, no, that's not what it's about. Obedience is my response to the grace of God that's been poured out on my life. Second thing I want to look at as we close is it's the small things. If you've been around this church long, you've heard me say more than once, it's not the big, huge decisions that add up to a life. It's the small decisions you make every day that add up to a life that's well-lived or a life that's lived outside of the grace of God. We see small decisions here. You see, here we have Silas saying, you know, I think I'll stick around. We have Paul saying, you know, maybe I'm feeling kind of restless there, Barnabas. How about we go visit those churches? Those are just daily, these guys are just living their daily life. We have the advantage. We have, we look through the lens of the New Testament and go, yeah, this is a big deal. These are decisions that are going to shape the future of the Christian church and by extension shape our lives. Huge deal. For them, just another day. Just some decisions that they made because they just wanted to be used of God. They wanted to serve the Lord. And I think that that is so refreshing. It's the small things. It's the small decisions. You don't know But that small decision you make in your life, you don't know how that's going to impact you, your life, the lives of others around you. But bank on the fact that God uses the small things. He uses the everyday decisions that add up to a life that's well lived in his kingdom. Third thing, folks, it's not rocket science to know that we're going to have conflict Conflict is just part of what it is to exist as a human being. We all have conflict. And some of us more than others. Some of us are crankier than others. Some of you are smiling. But you know, conflict is inevitable, and that's my point. 
It's not that conflict isn't going to happen. It's what are you going to do with it when it does? Conflict should always be a breeding ground for grace. Maybe grace didn't come to Paul right away over this dispute he had with Barnabas. Because now Paul, he had been ticked off at Mark, and now he's ticked off at Barnabas and Mark. And and does that take you out of God's will? Yeah, well, you've got to be careful with that. I mean, this is not an excuse to go around starting arguments with people. But you've got to realize that what kicked into play at some point, because we see it through looking at the full counsel of God's word, is that conflict led to the recognition and the need for and the extension of grace. And that's good advice anytime. So I don't know what kind of conflict you might have currently in your life or that you may face this afternoon or things that have caused you to kind of grit your teeth, situations with families, situations with neighbors, relatives, just Conflict is inevitable. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to allow that to well up in you and become bitterness? Or are you going to allow the Holy Spirit of God to work in your heart, soften your heart, and give you grace, unmerited favor for other people? Because guess what? It's the only way that you stand before God. It's the only way I stand before God is in his grace. And Jesus says there's only one requirement in that, and that's that you give it away. So conflict should always be the breeding ground for grace. Always. I don't, I don't care what it is. I think that that's a universal principle. I don't think that there's any conflict that's too big for the grace of God to come to bear. So obedience is very different than legalism. It's the small things that add up to a life, and conflict should always lead us to grace. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this morning for a new year. And Lord, I, I just, I love these benchmarks, these new beginnings that we have. And, and, uh, and, and Lord, we know that your mercies are new every morning. So I pray for each one here, Father. If, if there are people here that don't know you or that have been walking away from you, that you would impress upon their hearts to turn around and walk towards you, to walk with you, to walk obediently. Father, for each of us, you know the concerns of our hearts. You know the areas where perhaps there's been conflict or upset or discord. Pray, Father, by your Holy Spirit that you would give us the ability to humble out and to realize that it's just not worth it in the end. In times, Lord, I know there are times where relationships are, are broken. And Lord, I understand that. I don't want to make light of that. But I also know, Father, that you're the God of restoration. So I pray, Father, for restoration, for those, those things that, that, those limbs that are out of joint, as your word says. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you that you use us. Thank you for the little things, the things that, those daily decisions, Lord, help us in our, in our endeavor to walk with you, to realize that as we walk obediently, we don't know what's around the next bend, but to trust that you do and to know, Father, that our lives are in your hands. So we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.